Why do we have kids? I mean, from as soon as they, they're born, they completely dominate your life. Your life revolves around them. You used to be able to stay up late and sleep in. And stay asleep in between those two periods. <coughs> no more. Those days seem so long ago now. Now you wake up multiple times in the night to give them a drink. Turn the music back on that somehow stopped. Clean up spew. Put blankets on them because they're cold. Sarah said to me the other day, um, did you realise that your jacket has got spew on it? And I, I thought I'd cleaned it up. But you know how that milky stuff goes right in. <clears throat> and I looked down and sure enough, there was some dried spew on one of my favourite jackets. You used to be able to say to your spouse, let's go get a coffee and go. Just like that, just walk out the door. No more. It takes half an hour to get the nappy bag together. Making sure we've got drinks and treats for the kids as well as wipes and spare nappies and changes of clothes. And then when you get to the cafe, you can't actually relax and enjoy it. You're constantly on the watch. On the watch. Last time we were at our, one of our ca- favourite cafes, Joshy went and he just shoved out his arm and all the sm- smoothie went over Kizzy and the floor. And then you're conscious of that parent shame, you know. <laughs> you're like, oh, no, she's not normally like, well, he actually is. <clears throat> you used to be able to go away on holiday and go just like that. Now a car journey or a plane ride with the kids is an exercise in military planning. You start Google Maps searching where the playgrounds are so you can kind of hop between them. Fantastic, there's a playground in Tihana. Let's stop there. You get pushed to the limits of exhaustion. I never forget walking into the lounge one night and Sarah had her head on her arm. And I'm pretty sure that Anya had gone to sleep and Sarah hadn't realised it because the rocking was down to about three millimetres. Sarah reckons she was actually still awake, but I don't think so. When you have kids, you lose your life. The way things used to be are gone. Why do we do this to ourselves? I was reflecting on this question, and I think the reason we primarily do this is because we look at the relationships we have with our own parents and brothers and sisters. And they are some of the most precious gifts in life, aren't they? They make life worth living. And my heart goes out to those who don't have good relationships with either their parents or their children. And I think that's the reason we have kids, because we want to give that gift of relationship to them. There's a potential reward that far outweighs the cost of losing our lives, so to speak, of retaining control over the way we used to live before we had kids. And so as much as I have wonderful memories of our time before children, there's no way I'd ever hand my children back. Our children are our delight and we're so grateful to God's gift of them to us. And so while we have lost the way, we have lost our lives, so to speak, we have gained so much more. 
And in our reading today from Mark, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Why should we lose our lives for Jesus' sake? I think there's a a same reason we decide to lose our lives for our children. There's a potential reward that far outweighs the loss of retaining control over our lives and being able to live our lives on our terms. And that reward is to know Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, to become like him, to receive the identity that he gives us and spend the rest of our lives sharing this priceless gift with others. So let's delve into our passage today and see why it is such a reward to know who Jesus is. Now, uh, for those of you who um, are visitors, we've been on this journey through the Gospel of Mark. And, and up until this point in the Gospel, uh, Mark has been uh, building up to the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human form. But the problem is that Peter and the rest of the disciples, and in fact the whole Jewish nation, had expectations of the Messiah. They had grown up believing that the Messiah would one day come and defeat evil and injustice. And they, he would take the throne of the nation by force. But in our passage today, Jesus said something nightmarish to Peter. He said, no, I haven't come to live and conquer through military might. I've come to conquer by suffering and dying. And he said, this must happen, meaning that's his plan. That's why he came into the world. Jesus effectively said, I'm not here to take power, I'm here to lose it. I'm not here to rule, I'm here to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. It's an upside down Messiah. And that didn't make any kind of sense to Peter. So he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now this weird rebuke in the Greek is used in the sense of Warning to prevent something from going wrong. And Peter, in his mind, he says, no, there's something going wrong here. You've got to stop, Jesus. Let me tell you how it's going to be. I think in his mind, he had this, this image of Jesus being this military ruler, and he would be the general. And he would be telling all these other guys what to do. But he had no comprehension of the scale of what Jesus was operating on. Jesus' mission was not limited just to the people of Israel. He was concerned with the restoration of the whole of humanity and even creation itself back to God. His life and death were the only way that every human being that ever lived could return to God. How shocking it must have been for Peter when Jesus responded to him by saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but it said that Peter took him away. And then it it said Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. So Jesus was talking to Peter, but he had his back to him. Ouch! Imagine if someone did that to you. In no uncertain terms... He says to Peter that his suffering and dying is God's plan going right, not wrong. And any pressure to the contrary was the work of Satan. Imagine 
being in that situation. And no sooner had Jesus confirmed his upside down plan of conquering evil and sin, but then Jesus calls the crowd to him, including his disciples, and tells them if they want to be his disciples, they'll have to do the same thing. Those who would follow him need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In other words, part of you will have to die if you want to follow me. And if that's not enough, Jesus continues with even more unexpected and totally unforeseen news. To save your life, you must lose it. What does it mean to deny yourself and lose your life? The word for life here in this passage, and I've never seen this before, but it's psyche. It's the, the Greek word from which we get psychology. In other words, it refers to a person's distinct identity, yourself, what makes you, you. Now, it's interesting to see that Jesus goes on to say these famous words. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the world offers us life. A form of life, an opportunity to create a distinct identity for ourselves. A chance to say, I am somebody because. And in our culture we have a whole bunch of things that people use to try and answer this question. And a quick flick through Facebook videos will give you some idea of the ways in which people try to create an identity. Top of the list, I think, is probably physical attractiveness. I am someone because I am hot. And there are tons of videos on Facebook that are claiming this source of identity. But Jesus tells us that trying to find our identity in the world means that ultimately we will lose ourselves. Why is that? Because there is nothing in this world that can ever be enough to make you sure of who you are. You think about hotness. Someone might be really hot. But in 50 years' time, they're not going to be hot. This is the way it works. <clears throat> There's a famous song that, that I used to, I, I still love. Um, I think it's, I can't remember, Aerosmith maybe. Every time I look in the mirror, all these lines on my face getting clearer. And, and every year that goes past, every, you know, you look back at photos of yourself and you say, hmm, the hairline recedes. It's pretty tragic, really. If you base yourself on your physical hotness, you're in trouble. Because it's going to go. And then what are you going to do? <laughs> Theologian William Vanstone says that every human being knows the difference between false love and true love. In false love you use the other person to fulfill your happiness. But in true love you spend yourself in service of making another person happy. Because your greatest joy is their joy. But the problem is that nobody is capable of true love. Not fully. We can, we can show some true love. But not pure true love. Why is that? Because true love is something we all desperately need. And we will always be seeking a return on the love that we give out. I was thinking about, <laughs> thinking about this. And when I write, you know, Sarah loves a nice card with, with some nice things about her in it. 
And I say, <clears throat> when I remember to do this, I, I make a nice card and I write all the nice things that I can think of and I give it to Sarah, along with some kind of gift, or possibly two or three gifts. But if she just reads the card and goes, puts it in the drawer and carries on, what am I going to think? I want some return here. You right? I want some, oh, that's lovely, dear. Those are the nicest words you've ever said to me. Thank you for this lovely, you know, I'm looking for a return. I don't have the capacity in me. I don't have the ability in me to give a whole bunch of stuff to Sarah and for her to just turn around and walk away. I couldn't, can't do that. It's not what I expect. And call me mercenary, but that's the way it is, right? No matter how hard we try, our love is not entirely true. It, does, it expects a return. <clears throat> Vanstone says, what we need is someone who loves us but doesn't need us. We need someone who loves us but doesn't need us. Someone who loves us radically and conditionally vulnerably. Someone who loves us just for our sake. If we receive that kind of love, that would so assure us of our value... It would so fill us up that maybe we could start to give love like that too. Who can love with no need? Jesus can. He doesn't need us at all. He didn't have to create us. In the Bible we read of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity, the Godhead. It's a loving community that has been knowing and loving each other perfectly for all eternity. God has all the love within himself that the whole human race lacks. We started out talking about why we have kids. And we saw that people have kids, I think, because we prize the possibility of relationship with them. Above our own ability to live our lives on our terms. Why should we follow Jesus then? Why should we lose our lives for his sake? Because in him we receive an identity that is unshakable because it is based on his love that doesn't need us, but loves us truly anyway. Jesus came to lose his life on the cross. And in the silence that he, when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his identity as the Son of God. God turned away from his own son. He lost his identity so that we could receive ours. Jesus desired something greater than his life. He desired us. But he doesn't need us. He was willing to lose every right that he had as a son of God so that we could become children of God. Where is your identity this morning? I'm going to ask you a question. Well, I'm actually going to ask you to finish a statement. And I want you to be conscious of the first answer that comes into your mind. Ready? Here it is. I am somebody because. Have you captured the first thing that comes into your head? Now I'm going to give you some framework around the correct answer to that question. 
If you finish that sentence by answering in the first person, I am somebody because I, I think you should try again. Because you got it wrong. If you answered it in the third person, I am somebody because Jesus, I am somebody because He, then I think you'll know what peace means. Let's try that again. If you answered in the first person, the first time around, why don't you try again? Notice the peace seep into your soul when you answer, I am somebody because Jesus loves me. I am somebody because Jesus counted me worthy of dying for. I am somebody because Jesus gave his life for me. However you choose to finish that sentence, make sure you start it with Jesus. Not I. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the unexpected God. You are the God that we are surprised with. Your method is upside down. You lost your life so that you could win. You laid down your life and then you gained it back again. You lost your life for us. And so, Lord, we want to respond this morning to you. And if you are here and you would like to respond to God, you would like to claim his identity that he offers for you this morning, would you say, Lord Jesus, I receive your love and your power and your grace and your upside down kingdom. Lord, I want to receive the identity that you have prepared for me. I want to base who I am on you and not on this world that is fading away. In Jesus' name, Amen.